John chapter 18. And we'll begin reading with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, And officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, saying, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. At this point in our study in John chapter 18, we've concluded our study of the upper room discourse. And now, um, as we enter into chapters 18 and then into 19, the narrative resumes as Jesus is on His way to the cross. As we work our way through these next couple of chapters, they detail Jesus' arrest, His betrayal, His trial, His torture, the mocking, and His death. And as we go through these next couple of chapters and see all of these things, one thing, one thing screams to me from these pages. And that is this, that Jesus is in complete, total control. There is no point in this narrative at which something happens to Jesus that He did not intend to go through. It's amazing to me that as we go through these chapters, all the times that Jesus displayed His power, that He revealed His authority, and they still carried out this heinous, wretched act of putting to death the Son of God. But these events, these are the events that He has long anticipated. We've been looking forward, in a sense, to this moment throughout our entire study of John's Gospel. 
And now that the time has come, Jesus doesn't run away from completing His his mission to obey the Father, to provide salvation for all who will believe in Him. He embraces it because it's His plan. He means to go through everything that He goes through. So as we look at this scene that we've just read here in the garden, I want to simply point out to you some of the details that I think are important and we'll make some application as we go along. Number one, notice the place. This was the place where Jesus was betrayed. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron. How many of you are familiar with the brook Kidron? You're probably not. You've probably never been there, may have never even heard of it. You may have just read over the name, never given it a second thought, and went on with your life. The Brook Kidron is a valley that starts north of Jerusalem and passes between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives on its way down to the Dead Sea. And this brook, when we think of the word brook, we think of this little babbling body of water that's constantly on the move and might could do a little fishing in it if you wanted to, but it's a, it's a constant stream of water. Well, the brook Kidron was actually dry most of the year. Most of the year it was just a dry, barren valley, but during the rainy seasons, it took on its role as a brook and water began to flow. One significant fact about the brook Kidron is that it was... The same place in 2 Samuel that we find that King David had crossed when he learned that he had been betrayed by one of his own friends, Ahithophel. This was also the place, since it ran right past the Temple Mount, where all of the blood from the sacrifices, Jesus is going to the garden now here at the Passover. There were sacrifices going on at this time. The brook Kidron was the place where all the excess blood from the thousands of animals that were killed would drain. And that's really why it's called the brook Kidron. Kidron just means murky or gloomy. It wasn't good water. It wasn't what you wanted to get on your knees and take a drink of. It was the place where the blood from the sacrifices in the temple would drain. And we shouldn't make more of these details than we ought, but you can't ignore the fact that this in the same place that King David was betrayed by one of his own friends and in the same place where the blood of the sacrifices flowed, Jesus on this night would be betrayed by one of his own disciples while on his way to lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice for sin. The simple point that I want to make from that is this, is that the cross, the the death of Jesus is the peak, it's the pinnacle of all of human history. It's the center of the story of the Bible. Yeah, we have 66 books, we have lots of stories over lots of centuries, but they all point to one thing, to one moment, and that is the moment that Jesus would lay down His own life as a sacrifice for sins. Whether we choose to see it or not, everything that happened before the death of Jesus throughout all of human history happened to lead up to this moment. 
God so orchestrated the events of human history that at the time that Jesus was born, Rome was in charge. The Jews were oppressed. The Pharisees were holding to the law the way they were holding to the law. The atmosphere of expectation for the Messiah would be there. The timing of the birth of John the Baptist was no coincidence. Everything that happened in all of human history, God orchestrated it to lead to this moment. And everything in all of Scripture, in some way, points us to this one event when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would die for sinners. And that's seen in the simple fact that on this night, Jesus crossed the brook Kidron. Verse 1 also says there was a garden. He says where there was a a garden which he and his disciples entered. It's not just any garden, but it was a familiar garden. Verse 2 says Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. The other gospels identify this garden as Gethsemane. You're familiar with that name. John, however, doesn't record the time that Jesus spent in prayer here. This was the place where Jesus led His disciples and then He took the the three to go with Him a little further. And then He went on a little further beyond them to pray. He, he, He prayed, He pled with the Father. He said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. He came back, the disciples had fallen asleep. He says, couldn't you have stayed awake to pray with me just an hour? He goes back to pray again, and though he's praying that if it is the Father's will that the cup should pass from him, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but as thou wilt, thy will be done. And this was the place where Jesus, as the Scriptures tell us, his sweat became as drops of blood. It was an agonizing time of prayer. It was a familiar place to the disciples. Jesus met with them here often. It was a safe place. It was a place where they were comfortable. So comfortable that while Jesus prayed, they could just lay down and go to sleep. They didn't mind taking a nap in this garden. They felt safe here. But Judas knew this place. As as treacherous as it is that Judas would betray Jesus, the Son of God, he betrayed Him with a kiss, and he betrayed Him in a familiar place. A place where they had met, where Jesus had met with Judas and with the other disciples. He betrayed him in a place of comfortable familiarity. And it might be easy to wonder why Jesus came here. He sent Judas away when they had had the the meal together. He said, what you do, do quickly. He knew Judas was going out to betray him. He knew that Judas was familiar with this garden. Jesus knew that Judas would know that they would go here. So why did Jesus go there? Why didn't He go somewhere else? Guys, it's not safe to go to that garden tonight. Let's find another place. It's just another evidence that Jesus is in perfect control. He knows exactly what He's doing. Everything is moving along according to the plan of God. Jesus went to this garden, this place of familiarity, on purpose because He intended to be arrested. That's the place. Also consider the people, specifically the people who came to arrest Jesus. Verse 3 says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, 
And officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. There was a detachment of troops. Now that word detachment is a word that refers to a specific kind of group. This kind of group could have numbered up to a thousand soldiers. Most scholars estimate that this specific group that came out to meet Jesus might have been around 600 men. 600 Roman soldiers to arrest one man. On top of that, there were, John says, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. These were essentially the the temple police, the temple guard. The temple police were involved because, well, the Pharisees are the ones who are getting this together, right? They hate Jesus. He's a blasphemer in their eyes. They want to get rid of Him, so they send some of their own. But the Romans are involved because, well, the Pharisees have no doubt told them that there's a man who claims to be king. He claims to be the Messiah, and that's a threat to Caesar. So the Roman soldiers agree to come with him. That's a threat to Caesar. You have this many men, 600 to 1,000 men, coming out all at once carrying lanterns and torches and weapons to go after a man who had never once threatened them. That would have been a show of real force. If I was out in a garden and 600 to 1,000 men came at me with weapons and lanterns and torches in the middle of the night, I would get a little nervous. Especially if I knew that they didn't like me. (laughs) And then at the front of the crowd is who? Judas. He must have felt powerful. No longer is he in the minority with just this group of fishermen and some carpenter who has taken on the role of a teacher. No longer is he bringing up the end of the line of a ragtag group of disciples. Following this man who doesn't do anything but get him into trouble. Now, he leads as many as a thousand man army. He's got his power. He feels that force behind him as he marches along to betray Jesus. The truth is, sometimes it does get frustrating being in the minority. (laughs) And, And only those who are truly trusting in and those who are really committed to the Lord Jesus will be able to stay with Him under that kind of pressure. The world is turning more and more against God's true church. I don't know if you've noticed. We're feeling more and more the reality that we are in the minority. And, unfortunately, we're going to lose some people that we thought were really with us. There comes a point... When the pressure becomes too great for those who are not truly trusting in Christ. It's been happening all through church history. This is nothing new. John told 
the church in his first letter that those who went out from us went out because they were not really of us. We all know those who have made a profession of faith, were baptized, who joined a church, but when things got tough for them, or when the appeal of the world outweighed the commitment that they claimed to have made to Christ, they left. We all know those people. They stand with the crowd. They're more in their element now. They might even feel more powerful where they are. So I say to those of you who may feel the pull of the world, beware. Beware to you whose ideas and beliefs align with the majority. Beware when the unbelieving world agrees with your worldview. Because it won't be long before you leave the church and happily join yourself to the world. Or worse, you'll find a so-called church that affirms your rejection of the truth and increases your self-deception. Beware. I would rather be in the minority on the narrow path that leads to life than in the powerful majority on the broad road that leads to destruction. Judas probably felt powerful leading his small army to arrest Jesus, but he forgot where the real power was. And that's number three. Notice the power. Verse four, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. I I love how John takes pains to remind us that Jesus didn't ask this question because he actually wanted information. John makes sure that we know that Jesus knew he asked for their benefit, not our, not his knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Some of your translations where it says, I am he, that he is italicized. The translators added that for what they believe to be clarity. But Jesus, just like so many other times we've seen in John's gospel, says those two little words. Those two words that in the, uh, the Greek Old Testament God used to describe himself. That name, I am. Ego eimi. They say, who are you seeking? Or he said, whom are you seeking? Jesus said, For they said, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, what happened? They drew back and fell to the ground. Who really has the power here? He knew what was going to happen, but he still asked, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus. And all Jesus says is, I am. And this detachment of troops, this 600 to 1,000 man army fell to the ground. 
hundreds of armed men, trained soldiers, trained to stand in the heat of battle, coming at night with all this force to arrest one man, Judas, right in the front. And all Jesus does is say, I am. And they can't even stay on their feet. For just a brief moment, just a second, just long enough to say two words, Jesus demonstrated His glory and His power. Revelation chapter 1, John gave us this vision that he had of Jesus in his glorified state. He said in verses 12 through 17, he said, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And His voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John sees this vision of Jesus. His voice is like the sound of crashing waves. John says it's like a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And the reaction of John is to fall down like a dead man. When Saul of Tarsus saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? He fell off his animal. He was struck blind. When Isaiah saw the vision in the temple, he couldn't do anything but cry out, Woe is me! Ezekiel saw him and he fell on his face. Daniel saw him and his spirit was troubled. He was grieved. That's why I don't buy much into these people who tell you they had this dream or that they died and they saw Jesus and came back. Because this isn't the vision that they describe. If you saw Jesus in His glorified state, you would fall on your face. You wouldn't be able to stand. And for a mere second, these unbelieving Roman soldiers and these temple guards and Judas himself saw that glory and experienced the terror and the force of Jesus' power. Jesus' name has power. Judas and his hundreds of soldiers thought they were intimidating. Their lanterns, their torches, their weapons, their armor. They thought they were in charge. They were going to come out here in this show of force and take this one man in and really make an example out of him. And Jesus reminds them once again that they can't do anything to Him without His consent. Jesus has the power. Jesus is in charge right here in this garden. It almost makes me laugh that the very next thing Jesus does is just ask His, questions, his question again. And, and the dummies say the same thing. 
He says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. They fall down. They get up. Jesus says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Brace yourself, guys. He's going to do it again. (laughs) Jesus answered in verse 8, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus shows his power in a spectacular way when he says, I am, and they all fall to the ground. But he also shows his power in maybe a a less than spectacular way in verses 8 and 9. You see, he cared for his own. He had promised that he would lose none of them. And even when he's about to be arrested and wrongfully put to death, he fulfills his word. He ensures the safety of those who are trusting him. Those who belong to him. You see, the power of Jesus that is terrifying and powerful enough to destroy armies is also the power that fulfills his promises of kindness in keeping his own. I'm glad Jesus is powerful. And I'm glad that I'm not on the the judgment side of that power. I'm glad to be on the protected side of that power. Now I have to ask the question, which side are you on? You will either face the terror of His power, or you will be saved by His mighty power. If you repent of your sin, call out to Him for mercy, trusting in Jesus alone. He has power to save you from sin and from judgment. doesn't matter what you've done. No matter how far you've gone, no matter how many sins are on your list, Jesus has power to save. But if you continue in your sinful rebellion against Him, If you reject the God who made you, the one to whom you owe your life, you will experience the other side of His power. You will experience the power of His wrath and His judgment. I'm thankful to be under the protection of His power. And here in John 18, Jesus has just given us another reason to be reminded that He's in charge and all of this is going along to the Father's plan. So we've seen the place, we've seen the people, the power, and now let's look again at that plan. Number four, the plan. The disciples didn't realize it yet that this was the plan. (laughs) They didn't know that this was what Jesus meant to do. And uh, Peter proved that. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Good shot, Peter. You you missed. (laughs) You got his ear. And as much as I like to pick on Peter, I'm just like him. (laughs) If you'd admit it, you probably are too. Jesus is simply obeying the plan of the Father. He means to go to the cross. He's proven His power. Jesus doesn't need Peter to draw his sword. Jesus just needs to speak and they all go down. And then Peter jumps up like, I got you back, Jesus. 
running out there with his sword and wax the guy's ear off. I'm like that. Sometimes, for just a moment, I forget that God's in control. Something happens, I react, jump the gun, and look stupid. Anybody with me? Say amen. amen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we need to just chill out, <laughs> back off, be patient, and trust God. He's got it, He's under control. In case you're wondering, the other Gospels tell us that uh, Jesus picked up Malchus's ear and healed him. What amazes me is that Jesus literally knocked them down with two words. He picks up this guy's ear and heals him, attaches the ear back to the body, and they still arrest him and march him back. That really does just go to show the darkness of the hearts of men and the grip of sin. Here's the point. Verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Everything that Jesus has done throughout His entire life and ministry has been to please the Father in heaven. I mean, even as far back as his childhood, even when Mary and Joseph lost him as a 12-year-old boy, they found him in the temple. Mary says, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. She was talking about Joseph. But Jesus answered, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? He wasn't talking about Joseph. Even from that early age, he did all that he did to fulfill the work that the Father had sent him to do. His whole life, from birth to this very moment in the garden, to the cross that lay before him, was all part of the Father's plan. So, Jesus according to plan, was arrested. Look at verse 12 to 14 as we wrap this up. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. They led Him away to Annas first, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. <clears throat> You remember Caiaphas, don't you? Lazarus had been raised from the dead. The Jews gather together and they say, you know, what are we going to do with this man? He's, he, he's, he's calling everyone to follow him. Everybody's going to follow him. And the, the Romans are going to come and take us out of our place. They're just going to occupy our land and kick us out. We've got to do something. And Caiaphas said that it would be expedient, to our advantage, convenient, that one man should die for the people. Now what he meant was that Jesus should die so that the Romans don't run the rest of the Jews out of their land. 
He didn't realize the deeper truth to the words he said. Jesus is going to his death. He means to. He's doing it for a purpose. Caiaphas didn't realize how much truth there really was in the words that he spoke when he said that one man should die for the people. He didn't realize that Jesus was dying to take away the sins of the world. This was his plan from eternity past. Revelation 13.8 refers to Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In the pages of Scripture, His coming was promised even as early as Genesis chapter 3. When God cursed the serpent by which Satan had tempted Eve to sin, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. And all of human history has moved to that end. When Jesus went to the cross, He crushed the head of the serpent. He dealt that death blow to Satan. In the grand plan of God, in comparison to the defeat of Satan, Jesus' death on the cross was just like a temporary bruise on the heel. It's just what it took to crush the snake's head. Everything we read about Jesus' suffering and death in these next couple of chapters was all part of the plan to defeat Satan, conquer death, and forgive sinners, including you. I've told you before, I'll tell you again today, and I'll tell you for the rest of my life, your sin and my sin offends God. He is holy. He is righteous. He cannot tolerate sin. No matter how many good deeds you do, you will never be good enough. You are guilty. You deserve His judgment, His wrath, and punishment. But He loves you. And He desires to show you mercy. Jesus came and lived this sinless life that you could never live. He lived it for you. Then He submitted Himself to the punishment of the cross and the wrath of God to take the judgment that you deserve. Everything that's needed for you to be forgiven, for you to be reconciled to God, has been obtained by Jesus. All you have to do is turn from your sin, turn from trusting in your own goodness to get you there, and put your trust only in Jesus Christ. His death is sufficient. You can be forgiven. You can be free. Only in Him. Yes, Jesus was arrested. But it was all according to plan. God's plan. To save sinners. Like me. And like you. Amen? Amen. Stand and let's pray together. God, I thank you. for the control that You have over this universe, this power that You have displayed 
in your Son who came to save us. He will display that power one day in judgment on the earth. His mighty power will execute judgment on all who turn from you, who reject you, and continue in their sin. But even now, you are displaying the greatness of your power by saving wretches like us, like me. Thank you for this mighty power. Thank you that we can trust you, that you are fully in control of our lives. May we not do like Peter did, jump the gun and do something foolish. But trust you that everything is going just according to your plan. And that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.